I'm a widower, but don't tell my kids. My name is Matthew Kroll. And in my loneliness, I've learned to give complete and unquestioning faith to the people I love. I don't know if that includes you. My name is Shahir Dowd. Well, this is the only podcast about <laughs> movies, specifically the film Asteroid City, and I'm kind of depressed now. <laughs> uh, well, you know, look, it doesn't, th- that quote doesn't include you. Okay. So, right. therefore, you are one of the people I love. There you go. You big softy. I knew you <laughs> loved me. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. What are we talking about this week? What are we doing? We're talking about Asteroid City. We're talking about Wes Anderson movie. We, it is. You know, I was I was trying to make the comparison this week. I was like, is Wes Anderson my Marvel? <laughs> like, like, is it? And, and is it the same dynamic? Which is that you're every time a Wes Anderson movie comes around, you're just like, well, it's just the same as the last one. Why do we have to do this? You know, like, is, do, it, is it the same dynamic? Is it your Wes? Is Wes Anderson your Marvel for me? Circa. 2018 yeah. yeah whatever it was you know like whatever the yeah. running gag was and i was just i was just like thinking about that i was like okay so now i gotta you know like def- i guess the thing is is like i don't think i've defended wiss anderson all the way as though it's like we have to love it right like i, I think maybe that's the because like isle of dogs for example i didn't like Right. Yeah. I did like Isle of Dogs. There you go. Uh, Life Aquatic, which I think... We, so we've done Life Aquatic, Isle of Dogs, uh, French Dispatch, and then this will be our fourth with Wiss Anderson. I believe so. so I, I would love to... You know what I'd love to do at some point? Because it's... It, it, it And I won't spoil it yet. Up until I saw Asteroid City, and who knows if this changed it. Um, uh, what's it called? The uh, Royal Tenenbaums Royal is Tenenbaum. my absolute favorite film uh, of his ever. It is not my favorite of his, but it is one I really like. I... Um, I you know it's funny because I think the 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 criticism leveled at Wes Anderson is that he makes the same movie over and over again and his traits are so recognizable. In fact, to the point that there is a TikTok uh, trend. Have you, I don't know if you've seen it. The oh, yes. make everything a Wes Anderson. They take the theme from the French Dispatch and cut it and everything like that. Uh, I think he has uh, rightly said that he's never going to watch any of those. So <laughs> stop. Right. You know, don't make sure you're not doing it just to try and get his attention. Um, you know, I think there is a fair that is a fair criticism to be aimed at him. I tend to find that the films are nuanced in an interesting way where they are different. But um, I think there, I think there's a delineation between the two eras of Wes. Oh, I would say three eras of Wes Anderson. Uh, oh, I, I would say. Bottle Rocket and Rushmore represent early Wes Anderson where there was an, uh, and there are only, you know, the two films in this period where there was more of an adherence to sort of a classic filmmaking style that wasn't so steeped yep. in the Wes Anderson of it all. Of it mm-hmm. all. The Royal Tannenbaums is where the design aspect of the filmmaking comes into play and becomes sure. a, a significant feature and kind of keeps going from there to the Life Aquatic as well. But I think the Grand Budapest Hotel is where we get what what people are sort of more recognizing as Wes Anderson right now, which is the uh, non-narrative, interrelated, uh, multi-layered narrative uh, storylines that are working on top of each other and informing one another. Um, so you get uh, something like that, something like the French Dispatch, even Moonrise Kingdom to an extent as well. Um, so you sort of, you know, there's many eras of Wes Anderson, but I think for the... Uh, for for the viewer who isn't interested, they probably all feel the same. Yeah, I like I like that your your three distinctions because for me I didn't have them. I kind of had two. Right. Okay. Uh, and 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 I feel like uh, Royal Tenenbaums kind of was on the edge of those two. Right. But I like your third distinction of like the multi layered storytelling and the things sort of building on each other from a like narrative or meta narrative perspective. Yeah. Uh, I've said on this podcast before. I don't 
love a lot of his films. Right. I've been uh, I've been non enamored with them. Yeah. Um, but I will say that uh, this movie in particular, before we saw it, uh, I was still excited to see. Okay. And I think, and I know we want to get into some emails and stuff before we get into like sure. real nitty gritty about the movie. But I think the reason I wanted to see this movie was its subject matter. Okay. Um, like, whereas, uh, you know me, I don't really like stories about writers. Okay. <laughs> Even though this movie is actually a story about a writer, there's more to it than that. Like, I think that's why the French Dispatch, uh, I think I liked fine, but didn't like connect, connect with right, me. Right, right. Um, um but this is like 50s era sci-fi, <laughs> like desert town around uh, a meteor crash. Or is and it? To, or, or is it? Or is it? And I, I just was like, yeah, this is, this is what if Wes Anderson did Fallout. Right. This, is, this is exactly the kind of thing I, I would like him to explore. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I, I was very excited to do this movie, and I'm glad we were able to. I went last night. Okay. Uh, Jamie and I had a little date night, had a nice little little dinner afterwards, and it was. I'll get into that experience too because I think it actually all plays in. Okay, and I'm um, very curious what Jamie thinks of it because she's obviously a designer herself. Yeah. And I'm, oh, I'm yeah. curious uh, what she would have thought of the movie. Um, before we do that, we've got a few emails to get into. Uh, thank you again. We've uh, sort of, again, peek behind the curtains in terms of the way we do things, which is that we had a couple of back-to-back recordings, which means we couldn't get to a lot of these emails. So, thank, again, thank you for emailing them in. Apologize that it took us a little bit of time to get to. And we're going to yes. hold off on a couple of these because some of these uh, have certain spoilers from movies that have been uh, running in recent weeks, such as Past Lives and Across the Spider-Verse. Uh, we're going to just try and skip over those a little bit for now. Uh, we will eventually read those emails as we love it when you email us in at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com so first email of the day is this i'll you, do it you need to jump in with this one go for it i think this, this is, is a while back as well this is a bit so yeah. we're, we're traveling come back with us in the Wayback machine to steven's email steven writes hi guys so after tetris and air i finally saw blackberry <laughs> and while tetris gave me nice retro feels and air was good as a good piece of filmmaking blackberry was by far the most fun I'm not a fan of the filming style. The acting is always too over the top for my taste, but it's bonkers in a good way. Worst movie of the three, but the best time at the movies of the three, if that makes sense. It totally does, Stephen. Stephen continues, saw Spider-Man, runtime flew by. Its writing was very clever and technically it's great. And yet I think I'm just over two-parter films. I'll go see the next one, but I'm just not excited about it. Hard same. Yeah. Thanks, Stephen. Just a real point there. I do think we should get to Blackberry because uh, I've actually heard the kind of the kind of the opposite, which is that it is the far, far and away the best of the corporate America movies that of late that we've been seeing. Uh, Apparently the Glenn Howard performance is amazing. And uh, you know, if you like him from it's always uh, sunny in Philadelphia, uh, I think it basically takes up the dinner system up a notch, uh, so to speak. And I'm, I am very curious to revisit the Blackberry story. Um, Remembering that, uh, wasn't it Paris Hilton's device of choice, which was what made it famous for a little while? Um, and, uh, you know, it was every business. Uh, you, you, would, you were definitely in business if you had a BlackBerry. Uh, I don't know if, if that makes me old or not, but uh, if you didn't have a BlackBerry, you weren't in business. If you didn't have a BlackBerry, fuck you. Yeah. Uh, Catherine writes us in. Hi, Matt and Shahir. I wrote in a few months ago when I just started listening to your podcast and asked about an, uh, uh, and asked about an episode on Aftersun. I didn't write again because I had no suggestions and I only listened to episodes on movies I've seen. But recently, I have not had much time to go to cinema. 
but my podcast app just showed me that I've listened to 100 episodes by now, so I thought I'd let you know that I still enjoy your podcast a lot, and thank you for that. Best greetings, Catherine from Hamburg. That's great. That's, that's great. That's great. I love it. I love it. This is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to put myself in, in Catherine's shoes for a second. Okay. I love it. When there's a podcast, you're like, oh, I listen to it. You, in your head, you're like, I listen to it every once in a while. And, yeah. da, 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 da. and then you look at your app or whatever, and you're like, oh, no, this is part of my routine now. <laughs> like, and, and I love that. I don't know. I love that. And I, that's so nice. Thank you, Catherine, for writing us in about that. Very nice. Thanks, Catherine, again. Uh, who's All up right. next? Next up is Muhammad. What up, Muhammad? Muhammad writes. I saw Air a few days after it was available to stream on Amazon Prime, and I really enjoyed it. I liked the story of the underdog, air quotes Nike, trying to woo Michael Jordan to sign up with them, and the eventual rise of a cultural phenomenon that is the Air Jordan shoe line. But after listening to your episode discussing the film, I can tell you that the film I watched is a very different film from the one you guys watched. I could almost feel a sense of revere when Shahir and Steven talked about Michael Jordan because growing up in Pakistan, basketball was never really the sport that we kids enjoyed, nor we knew it existed to a certain extent. It was just cricket, and even after immigrating to the U.S., all I knew about Michael Jordan was he was a very famous athlete and that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar moonlighted as a pilot. So, <laughs> while watching the movie, instead of... Yeah, instead of, oh, wow, so that's just, that's how this happened. My reaction was, oh, that's pretty interesting. To me, Air was one of those movies that unofficially requires you to be a basketball and particularly Michael Jordan fan, because without that emotional attachment to the subject matter, Air is a pretty solid movie instead of a really good one, at least for me. P.S. Thanks to another home run display of Photoshop skills by Matt, I also want the Air Shahir cut now. I mean, those glasses fit so well. Oh, is that the, is that the, uh, am I... Ben Affleck in that uh, you are in that one. You are. I, I felt yeah. like I didn't. Uh, uh, there was a Jason Momoa one, which I which you slotted me. Everyone into. wants the Momoa cut. I think that was from Fast Fast X. X. You know what's funny is uh, you, uh, you you'll know the cafe, but the cafe uh, that's close to my apartment oh, has just yeah. got a new barista. And I walked in, and the first thing the barista shouted to me was like, "Hey, yo, Jason Momoa!" And he was like, and then he he's been calling me that ever since. Um, which 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 is fun. It's fun. And I was I was also at a bike race over the weekend, and then at the end of the race, my hair was out, and I was sweaty and looking like a a sort of. Uh, a sweaty beast, and 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 someone else did the same thing, which is they came up and they insisted on taking a photo with me in the vein because they were aware I'm not Jason Momoa, and I don't look anything like Jason Momoa, and I'm nowhere near as built as Jason Momoa. I'm like his squishy cousin, second cousin. You're a tall, attractive man with really cool <laughs> hair now. But I'm his squishy second cousin, I would say. Sure. And and, and so it's been happening a lot, but I appreciate it. Uh, yeah. So question question about your hair because okay. that's really what everyone's wondering. What's it? Yeah, are you gonna ever cut it? I, again? It's getting a little naughty and a little funky. Um, <laughs> a little naughty. It's getting a little and a little naughty. Um, <laughs> no. Because side note, in all of these in all of these photoshops, I'm using photos from like life. three years ago, yeah, with because... the exception of a few. And uh, I, I feel like if you're not gonna. If you're not gonna, we should do a photo shoot one of these days <laughs> and just get a bunch of different photos that we think we could use because I want to refresh the pool. I'm worried that I'm like it's like uh, uh, in Arrested Development when um, it wasn't Job's character, but who gets hair and it drains his soul from him. 
um, oh, yeah. Was Tobias, yeah, Tobias gets hair and then it's like he's not willing to let it go because it's draining his soul away from him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's making him very, very weak. I'm worried that I might be in that scenario right now. Uh, I will, we're enough hair talk, uh, but maybe we should do uh, a few uh, updated photos for the, uh, for, the <laughs> for the thumbnails because you do such a great job on those. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I do a job on them. <laughs> uh, last email here coming in from Paul, and I wanted to save this one for last because it actually relates to the movie as we're going to be discussing it. Uh, Greetings. Judging by your listener emails, I think I'm not alone in appreciating your lively and thoughtful movie discussions. But one thing I haven't heard acknowledged in you is your role as a kind of anti-FOMO force in our modern media landscape. Ooh. I know I can get a little hitty about watching every film uh, from the right way, but life often intervenes. I appreciate that you guys, actual industry professionals with people and people who went to film school, often ungrudgingly share anecdotes about watching movies across multiple settings or multiple devices, missing things at the cinema, and occasionally dozing off uh, during a feature. It's a nice change of pace from the usual onslaught of FOMO-inducing marketing and apps, which always uh, always makes me feel a little bit better about my own viewing circumstances. And another reason I keep coming back to your show. Catch you on the interwebs. Uh, that is from Paul. Um, yeah, look, uh, I, I think the you, Paul, you said that in the most delightful way, which makes it sound as though we are um, easygoing cinema lovers who hey. are just willing to just like go with the flow and you know enjoy your thing. The other way to look at it is we're just complete unprofessionals who like mm. don't have the capacity or the time, as it turns out, to commit to this thing that we've said that we will be doing every week. And sometimes, Why not both? Yeah. And sometimes that is the case. Like, I think I've described on the podcast uh, certain episodes where I've watched, I've started a movie, didn't quite finish it, had to start watching it on the iPad or on an iPhone while I was at the park doing something else or, or you know, like um, certain situations like that or dozing off in a movie. Um, I think that I, I want to talk about that specifically as it relates to Asteroid City in some way. But Matt, you mentioned at the top of this that you had a particular story about the entire experience of watching Asteroid City. I sure did, but I did want to just have an aside real quick because the year was 2015 and two men went to go see Mad Max Fury Road. (laughs) They then became the anti-FOMO force. (laughs) I just felt like it was a very A-Team-esque build and I I had to do something with it. Uh, just for me. That was for me, everybody. Okay. Thank you for listening to that seven seconds. Um, <clears throat> no, um, yeah, th- the way that I saw this movie was a way that, uh, weirdly, not not to say that I haven't seen movies in cinema for a while, because I have, but uh, I hadn't gone on, like, a date night movie oh. in a minute. And you haven't just asked because... me out in a while. Well, <laughs> you're very you're very busy. Yeah, uh, Jamie, Jamie went uh, very, very uh, caring, my partner, and she and I went to go to the movies, and then we got dinner, and we, we had, like, it was a really, really great time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that might seem benign, but, like, a lot of times, to be perfectly honest, Jamie and I's schedules don't match up, mm-hmm. and, like, we just can't go do it, and because we have to record, you know, a, an episode a week, and our schedule's here, we have to make it work, like... My window to see films in the theater, on uh, unless we're trying to get something out across the weekend it releases, mm-hmm. is really Monday or Tuesday. Right. Um, because we record technically on Wednesday. You must love it when I come up with the movie choice for the week on Tuesday night then. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's great. This is my favorite. Uh, <laughs> but uh, this was really nice because we went and we saw it. Uh, pretty full theater. No one being a dick mm-hmm. or inconsiderate. And then we went out. Uh, we went to the Lincoln Center uh, uh, AMC, 
um, and we went out to dinner, and we just had, like, I don't know, like an hour-long conversation about the movie. Okay. And it was, and it was really just like... <laughs> like you guys should was be really on a podcast? It was really <laughs> sweet. What? It's like you guys should be on a podcast? It's like, well, I mean, yeah, maybe. But, like, I don't know. Actually, no. This is the, this is the thing. I want to talk about this as, uh, and maybe this plays into the anti-FOMO force. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really nice to talk with Jamie about a film that we had a lot to say about, and 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 it was for us. Hmm. Like, I don't know if that makes sense, yeah. but, like, in, in a world, in a world where everything is content, mm-hmm. Uh, I'm starting to really appreciate the things in my life that are not. Yeah. And the act of going to see a movie in the theater with uh, a partner whom I love and then going to get dinner and just like having a like a really cool discussion about it. Yeah. Was just something that like I really didn't remember that I missed or like that. I it, it, It'd been a really long time. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, I, I had the same experience watching The Menu with, with mm. my wife uh, because we both like enjoyed the film but i was kind of like just glad that we weren't going to be doing it on the podcast because i didn't have to like go into uh dissection brain because for me what happens in those scenarios is that i have to think about like what is my response to this movie and then how can i articulate it using what i think is evidence from scenes in the movie um, right. and 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 how can i make sure that i put my my overall my overall thesis about the film into context with what I've seen. So I'm, so I'm, I'm often kind of doing a lot of like um, analytical work into, you know, in terms of like how to read this film. And I'm thinking about other films that came before it, where, you know, like where it sits in the director's filmography, my own personal response to it um, and that sort of stuff. And so I kind of, I do like those moments where you could just watch a movie and go, huh? Yeah. That was a thing, you know? Yeah. It, (laughs) Yeah, it's just nice. I, I, and not that I don't like talking about movies here or elsewhere yeah. uh, on the interwebs. Of course I do. We wouldn't be doing this since 2015 if we didn't. Yeah. But, like, I don't know. It was just – it was a really just perfect night. So perfect, in fact, uh, that when we got home, we decided to watch Mission Impossible. Which one? The first one. First one. We're going through them. You know what's funny is, uh, oh wait, yeah, that actually brings us to the com- uh, how we are we going to have a conversation? We are going to do Dead Reckoning. How are we going to do this? Are you you're, you're going to go through all of them? I'm going to try. I don't know if I'll have time. I actually have recently re- rewatched all of them. Um, wow. So yeah, we should have a conversation about that. But any at any rate, uh, Mission Impossible <laughs> One is fantastic, right? I actually it's just really good. I I showed my son the train scene last night. I was. Really? I just wanted him to show. I wanted to show to him to watch a, a a big action spectacular, and that spectacular is spectacular, spectacular. Brian De Palma, like, kind of sets the tone for what the modern blockbuster should look like in that movie. At any rate, sorry, we got, we got get sidetracked there from Asteroid totally City fine. because there is a train in Asteroid City. But could you tell us what Wes Anderson's film Asteroid City is about? That last train is to San Fernando. Uh, <laughs> IMDb says that Asteroid City is as follows. Oh, I shouldn't have said follows, because the first word in this description is the word follows. following. But we're just going to go with it. We're keeping that all in. Following a writer on his world-famous fictional play about a grieving father who travels with his tech-obsessed family to small rural Asteroid City to compete in a junior stargazing event, only to have his worldview disrupted forever. Hmm. No, um, not quite the context that I, I wouldn't have said tech not, obsessed kids. Yeah, either. tech obsessed family. Yeah, 
it didn't seem to play. I, I think this and, and might have been something lost in translation. I'm going to give this one a two. <laughs> you're going to give it 10. a two out of what? What is that rating scale for? Uh, it, oh, uh, it's uh, actually it's two out of ten, but then there's seventeen aspects of that. Okay, it's, it's very complicated. It's a, it's a it's a quadratic equation. Yeah. Um, um. I so uh, much like you, I uh, saw this at an unusual time for me, which is that I, uh, as while I've been working this week, um, a lot of what I've been doing is rendering, uh, rendering a lot of files, and I've got a lot of stuff that needs like long times to render, and I've been sitting machine like basically my day consists of like tweaking everything I need to do and then setting it up overnight for a massive render and then coming in, in the morning and checking it out, and then I'd gotten to the stage where I kind of like needed three or four things to render, which took about half an hour each, uh, which I was like the perfect window, and there's a, happens to be a movie theater right next to me so i i was like yep and i checked the time and sure enough i could hit render run over to the movie theater watch <laughs> the movie and then come back in just to have the just to have those renders be done that's uh, great which is great i will say this um i went and saw this at the regal kaufman uh astoria which uh you went and saw this at lincoln i uh, imax or lincoln amc and i would lincoln, say lincoln yeah. amc feels like a wes anderson hub you know like it, this is this is his home turf and it's he's not a new york filmmaker but this is the kind of place where people would go see that movie right yeah where, I, I wish i got to see it in theater one i got to see it in theater three yeah um which is fine yeah. it just i would have i man i would have loved being on that balcony just watching this movie of course but. of course um i saw this in a fairly empty house and i will say um there was a there was two or three people uh in the theater and we all kind of co um uh, met afterwards, uh, just um, haphazardly, you know, like uh, impromptu, and all of us had the kind of same response to the movie, which is that we were all kind of left with a little bit of a head scratch over this whole endeavor, which is to say, it was undeniably all the things that make Wes Anderson great are all still on display. He is, a, you know, an incredible visual stylist, incredible uh, comedian, um, you know, telling visual gags all the way through, um, which I felt a chuckle at. Uh, quite often. But whereas with the French Dispatch, the last Wes Anderson film we did, I was sort of entranced by the movie and the laughs were not, uh, the, they were coming uh, almost despite my uh, sort of absolute mesmerized look at like everything that the film was doing on a narrative level. I was laughing here because I was struggling to find things to like really engage with on the film. So I was kind of like laughing at a little visual gag because it kind of gave me something to respond to. And most of the film left me quite cold. Now, uh, it's funny because I think the common review that's coming out about this film is that this is the most Wes Anderson Wes Anderson is ever Wes Anderson. Uh, if you follow Paul Schrader on Facebook, he's got written a, a little uh, uh, thread about this uh, being... Uh, uh, undeniably a Wes Anderson film, and, and that's what makes it interesting, is that nobody else could make his films, and I, and I think that's very true. Um, but what the thing that I've always liked about Wes Anderson films, particularly in films like The Grand Budapest um, and uh, The French Dispatch, is despite the narrative construction that he you know that he does where stories are layered upon each other changing aspect ratios telling stories about stories that are happening in you know different timelines in the same story uh, along with this sort of meticulous attention to detail you know like the color in this film is incredible the opening shot of asteroid city we were kind of pan left to right uh you know down some tracks is kind of so beautifully done that like very few people could do it um there's a great article in the new york times about wes anderson's grip by the way a guy by the name of sanjay um, who, you know, we should give a lot of praise to because the amount of detail required to do a Wes Anderson film is always incredible. But while I took a bit of time and understood what this film was doing, I 
also found it to be quite an unengaging um, exercise in so much as this is, you know, it's not a spoiler to say that this is essentially a large tome about grief and what grief does to an individual and how they react to it. Uh, and, and if you look at it on a metaphorical level, everything works in that sort of in the zone of like, this is what grief does to a person and this is how grief can, you know, can change over time. But I did find all of it a little bit underwhelming and unaffecting. And that's a tough one for me because I generally, that's the thing that I think makes Wes Anderson great. It's not the visual trickery. It's not the sort of cleverness of the writing. It's the fact that his characters, unlike, say, who we talked about, you know, we talked about Tim Burton, always feel like people who are bearing the weight of real pain. And even though they might be funny or their jokes are being had or there's visual gags, these are people that really are feeling the things that he is putting onto them. Um, and while that kind of may be true in this case, there's a level of um, distance that's placed between the actual tragedy and what the film is doing that didn't quite make it work for me. So that's that's kind of like my spoiler-free thing. I think we can get into specific spoilers there. But I don't. I I I mean, what was the conversation with you and Jamie like? Well, what, what did you guys uh, talk about? First and foremost, before we even get into that. Uh, I think this is going to be a great episode. Okay. Because I think you're totally wrong. Okay. So lay the smack <laughs> I mean, Look, we all can't. We, you can't be wrong about your opinion, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, I found this movie to be the most engaging film of his since the Royal Tenenbaums. Whoa. I also found it. Yeah. I also, and I would actually. Whoa. And I cannot say this yet. It might be my favorite film of his, Whoa. but I need to rewatch Royal Tenenbaums in a current day and age to really figure out if this would actually dethrone it. I don't think it's fair to say the new shiny one that I liked is my favorite without giving the other one a shot. I felt that way about the French Dispatch. Uh, see, I so this is this mm. is it's so interesting what we glom onto. Yeah. Because the thing that I was talking to Jamie about and that I really really loved about this film is it felt like it was a it was a and I, even when I was talking with Jamie about this, I feel like the conversation eventually gets me to a point, but I also didn't write down those points. Right. So, like, I'm going to, yeah, I yeah. feel like I'm going to flounder through this until we land in a spot. Fuck it, we're doing it live. Uh, <laughs> we're doing it live. Yeah. Um, this is one of his films that I think I love because it's about something bigger than his wacky characters. Okay. The rest of his films, to be perfectly honest, I think even even Royal Tenenbaums feel very like like what's happening in the how do I put this? What's happening in the characters' lives in those particular moments are the big pushes. There aren't large questions or things like sort of being uh, posited uh, around them. And also, I I feel as though. I've never had emotional resonance again, maybe outside of Royal Tenenbaums and his earlier work of of any like of any of his live action stuff. I've never had a character that I believed was feeling an emotion. Wow. <laughs> um, whereas this, this one again, whereas this one I, again, I don't think that the characters like I, I think we're getting the same type of a very um, 
you know, a pocket watch precision moment to moment acting and things. And I, I think that's very similar in all of his works. This just felt like there was an overall shell of meaning around the characters doing the clockwork performances, around the telltale imagery and mixture with miniatures, around the very uh, sort of like static or 90 degree pan type things. Like it, it, there was, it, this movie felt like it was really actually saying something and we'll get into what I think those things are. Okay. Where I didn't feel that in French Dispatch or Darjeeling Limited or or uh even even Isle of Dogs, which I really liked, mm. I found emotional resonance in that, but I think that's a little bit cheating for me because oftentimes in animation I like kind of glob on in different ways. Right. Um You're a fantastic Miss Fox guy? Uh I'm I'm not. I, I look at it and I see the mastery there. Yeah. I, I've never I've that's a movie you want to talk about FOMO? That's a movie I've tried to watch three times. Wow. And and everyone I know loves it right and i i don't know why i can't get on that i can't get in that foxhole <laughs> can't do it um this movie this movie fucking blew me away okay. i was not prepared for the amount of joy this thing gave me from frame one of spoiler town which we'll kind of get into right now yeah the fact that this was i don't even know what to call it but the meta narrative is about a play being put on there's actually kind of two meta narratives. There's the the discussion or the presentation of of a story done by Brian Cranston in a different aspect ratio in black and white about the creation and uh, and running of a play called Asteroid City, which we then cut into the full color, full frame, uh, you know, thing that we're actually watching. That I thought the thing was, and. It's funny because for most of the time when we bounced back and forth through things, mm -hmm. I didn't really find that connective tissue and I was expecting I was expecting to have the same feeling as I did with this last few films of just like, oh, this is neat, but like whatever. Mm -hmm. And then kind of by the end, which we'll get into, I feel like that tie about like, I don't know, finding meaning through grief yeah. was honestly one of the most human discussions I've seen this director have on a screen. Right. Um, I, I, and then you mix in that with literally one of my absolute favorite aesthetics into Wes Anderson style. Yeah. And it just, it fired on all cylinders. I loved the, the teenager plot. I loved the, the, the school kids plot. There, there was never a time, a lot of times in, in his films, It'll go to a different character, and I won't be interested in that character, mm -hmm. and then I'll have to wait to get back. Mm -hmm. Every one of these, I was there for. <laughs> I just, I, 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 when it gave the chapter markers, mm. I was like, I can't wait to see who we're gonna start with. Right. Like, I was legitimately excited. I think from the very beginning of this movie. It's so so yeah. strange. We, we, you and I live on a, and I pro apologize if the term is uh, not appropriate, but you and I live on a lazy Susan where we have flipped sides <laughs> completely because uh, what you're describing is how I felt about the French Dispatch. I know! And 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 how you felt about the French Dispatch is how I felt about this movie, <laughs> which is that none of it, it... It really didn't work for me in the way that everything else of his has done. Um, and 
and and we should really I I, I want we should really get deep into spoilers at this point because yeah, there's oh, yeah, a lot yeah, yeah, to discuss yeah. here. Yeah. Um, I think it's a very interesting film. And I think, uh, by the way, the term that you were looking, well, the phrase that you were looking for uh, was like, what do you do? Uh, what's a self-reflexive narrative? Um, and, and the phrase that I recall that could be a pro, uh, used here is mise en abîme, which is where the where essentially a copy of the uh, of the, the image is placed within uh, the, the image itself to the point where you get this sort of self-reflection upon itself. Um, the, one of the famous examples is uh, that they would always use as the cover for any essay about mise en abîme uh, was uh, uh, an image from uh, Orson Welles, The Lady from Shanghai, where he would walk into a hall of mirrors and, the, and you know, he, his character would kind of reflect upon himself upon himself. And in this case, what you've got is a television documentary at the very beginning outlining a, the making of the writing of a play that eventually will become the, the film that we will watch. And there are sort of interesting reflections as the actors that are uh, selected in the behind the scenes of the play, which is also in a way an artifice as well, because they recreate scenes entirely in that sequence, um, then become the actors that are in the actual movie, which is a play uh, that was written by the author in the, TV documentary that's played by Edward Norton, who's essentially right. the, the the puppeteer of the whole, or the the writer of all this. The material. crafter of the, well, and there's something so interesting about that uh, too. Uh, Conrad Earp, I believe, yeah. is the character's name. Yeah, and and the the a, a central theme for this movie, going into sort of spoilers, is uh, Conrad Earp passes away. Either bef- I don't quite remember either before the the play is put on or during its run. Yeah, and so. The questions then become, what is the meaning of the things? You know, like in the playwriting process, you can often go to the author if, uh, you know, if possible uh, and and ask questions. And now there has been, they have been left to open interpretations of how to respond to things. And, and the big crux of this movie is Augie, played by Jason Schwartzman, breaks... It, okay, so from a story point of view, <laughs> Org, it, within the play Asteroid City... Uh, that is being talked about by in the documentary by Brian Cranston and is being written by Edward Norton's character. Augie is a man, a photographer. Uh, Ste- Steenbeck is his name? Steenbeck? Uh, Augie Steenbeck. He's yeah. a war photographer. Yeah, a war photographer who is taking his family from one side of the country to the other uh, and his car has exploded in Asteroid City. Um, he's taking his family to uh, live with his uh, their grandfather after his wife has died three weeks earlier, and he is carrying the ashes of her uh, in the vehicle. Uh, they break down in Asteroid City as Matt Dillon, who, you know, again, another face that we haven't really seen a lot recently. I know. Uh, and, by the way, looks freaking fantastic. You know, like, oh, yeah. just looks exactly the same. Uh, mentions that we don't know what the problem is uh, with your vehicle, and, and Tom Hanks, who plays his dad, uh, or his father-in-law has to come back and pick up the kids. So, uh, so real quick yeah. on that, just that thing with the, so he plays a mechanic, and yeah. the 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 joke is, yeah. and you think it's a joke, and I think it actually ties back to the entire meaning of the film. Yeah. There, okay, now there's one of two possibilities here. It's either going to be a tiny part that's going to take no time, or your entire thing's going to have to be ripped apart. And they try it, yeah. and it seems like it works, and then it doesn't. And then it's revealed that he's like, I think we've run into a third thing I've never seen before. Exactly. A kind of grief and that we don't know how to deal it with. It is. Oh, God. I loved it. I loved it so fucking much. Sorry to interrupt. No, no. It's 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 wonderful stuff um, in terms of 
the metaphor as it plays, and Asteroid City is a city that has been created by an asteroid that hit the ground and created this massive crater and is also happens to be um, the spot where the Stargazers Club um, is going to be uh, coming together for a special uh, eclipse or something along those lines or mm-hmm. some kind of... Um, a stellar lo- event. Yeah, lunar event in which, in which an alien arrived to take the asteroid away and changes the very course <laughs> of human nature as we know it. Uh, Augie, of course, takes a photograph of that alien, and that photograph resembles another photograph that will appear in this film of another character played by, uh, played by Scarlett Johansson, an actress by the name of Mitch, who is staying in the cabin... Midge. Of, Midge, who is staying in the cabin across from Augie. Um, so yes, there are, this is, the movie is an entire hall of mirrors. Uh, my professor Harriet Margolis would call this a classic example of a mise en abeam. Um, and, and everything is reflecting upon itself. Yes. The metaphor is, you know, for the city, for the event, for what Augie is going through is how to deal with devastating grief which he is not dealing with very well because as he explains to his children at some point, he had planned maybe just to give his kids to his grandparent, to, to yeah. his uh, father-in-law, and then to he take He was going to abandon them. He was going to abandon uh, them, um, but changes his mind at some point. All of this is wonderful. All of this, I think, is really, really good. The problem is, for me, is, is something that Paul talks, uh, talks about here, is that I felt that the film kind of coasted along without much, um, with sort of a gentleness about it, which I hadn't expected from Wes Anderson in a while. His, his, uh, you know, the French Dispatch has an animated chase sequence in the end of it while still being a treatise on James Baldwin's appreciation of travel and food. And in a, in, and not just in an appreciation, a, like a real romantic ideal of what those things mean. Um, this film, I kind of think, gently moves along, but has that air of detachment because you kind of know that you're watching actors dealing with the material on screen. And when, in a way, it kind of reflects back on the audience and the filmmaking process itself. But you know, so, Oh, sorry. Well, the, the thing I wanted to get at here was that the film... I think the key to unlocking this film is a sequence that comes at the end when Augie breaks character, walks into the play... Um, that he has been working on and then goes uh, over to ask the director a question who can't answer the question, then walks out onto the balcony and finds another actress who was initially cast in this play, played by Margot Robbie, who was initially cast in this play as the wife, but was who had her scenes cut and has something to tell him about a dream that uh, was going to happen in that sequence. And I think everything needs to be, everything you need to know and understand about that film, about the film happens in that sequence. I found to Paul's point, I had drifted away uh, from this film by the time we got to that point. So I actually, while I thought that what Margot Robbie's character was talking about was kind of a beautiful memory of a wife that is long since gone and, and how to, how to navigate the hole that's left behind. I didn't find it to be as resonant as Ben Stiller saying, it's been a really hard year, Dad, to uh, Gene Hackman in the Royal Tannenbaums. Right? Uh, I didn't find it as, I didn't find it as resonant as Max Fisher saying, I'll be okay. I didn't find it as, as, you know, as, 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 as as, um, George Clooney's Fox, Foxy saying, 
you know, I am a wild animal, but I'll try to do, you know, I, I, a lot of this didn't play as well as anything else I've seen. And, I, and the thing is, I think the depth of the grief that he's been, that he's talking about, he's dealt with in, in other films in, in much stronger ways. I, I, so, I think it is a meditation about storytelling, but I, one that I found a little unengaging. I think it's about finding solace from things like grief or et cetera through storytelling. I think a big reason why I don't normally like movies about writers or movies about writers writing things right. is because even if it's reflective of the journalism that they're doing or the stories that they're crafting, uh, oftentimes it comes off in a in a still a self-aggrandizing or self-sort of serving way in in that regard where this is not Wes Anderson saying or, or portraying writers or or storytellers as the answer to everything right in a way this is his way of saying like no one has the answers mm -hmm. and all we have are the stories we kind of tell each other to even remotely try to get through things like crippling grief or just life in general. Like the way that, uh, you, it's funny, you said by the time you got to the end, you had sort of drifted off. Yeah. I a thousand percent agree, but I'm, I drifted off into like what, uh, like, uh, a dream I didn't want to wake up from the titular line that they all chant as they're getting ready to yeah. do this play is uh, you can't wake up if you don't go to sleep. Right. And that to me, like I definitely went into a flow state yeah. in this movie to the point where you said you felt, and if I'm putting words in your mouth, please correct me that you said that because we knew we were looking when we were in like the full color, full frame stuff, we were looking at a play that sort of helped you dis or it didn't help. It, it caused you to disconnect slightly from the characters in a way because you I, knew I it think, was a play. Yeah, no, uh, that and the fact that it also caused me, it, I didn't feel particularly, I, I didn't feel the weight of his loss because, because it was a play. Yeah. Okay. Uh, for me, what the weird thing is, and maybe this is just a style, not not a style, because when we say style, of course, we're talking about Wes Anderson's style. But I also want to talk about like the the context, the 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 color palette, the the time period, the 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 tone of even in Wes Anderson land, what this was. Maybe I just connected with it so hard because it's one of my sort of favorites. But I never got bucked by the fact it was a play. Because in up until the end, mm -hmm. there are hints and sometimes funny things when Brian Cranston walks into black and white. It's like, yeah, wait, yeah. I'm not, Am I supposed maybe to be he's here? not black and white. Yeah. Am I not in the scene? Oh, uh, okay. And he yeah. leaves. Yeah. Um, it starts to for, sort of unravel as it goes. Yeah. But like, really, the only time is when the actor playing Augie goes out of the play and into the the documentary world. Yeah. Uh, that's the one time where it sort of tied together for me. I never, whenever one was going on, I never was thinking about the other because I found both worlds very engaging. And then with the tie-in at the end, uh, connecting in a lot of different ways uh, to how storytelling can basically get us through the unknowing of life. Yeah. Uh, I super dug. There was one other thing. Well, actually, there's a lot of other things, but... um. 
Clifford, played by uh, Aristu Mihan, uh, one of the five uh, space at space canots or whatever the hell they were called, the children. Yeah. Uh, along with like um, uh, obviously Jake Ryan, who played Woodrow, mm -hmm. uh, Grace Edwards, who is Dinah. Yeah. Um, Ethan Josh uh, Lee, who is Ricky, and Sophia Lillis, who played Shelley, who can play like thirteen or thirty. Yeah. I don't understand how old <laughs> this person is. Yeah. Um, Clifford has a, I think, one of the most poignant moments in a Wes Anderson movie or in a movie about storytelling. Mm -hmm. And that was when he's talking. His whole thing is like, you, uh, you want to dare me to blank? You want to dare yeah. me to do this? And he'll always do stuff that'll hurt him or he'll jump off a roof or in this case, yeah. he was going to go hug a cactus. Yeah. Um, and his dad, played by Liam Schreiber, uh, J.J. Uh, Kellogg, is like, and I think stops him. Or it's either him or... Um, uh, Steve Carell's character. I don't remember who stops him, but they're like, "Why do you always like? Why do you always have to be dared all the time? Like, what is this?" And he says something along the lines of, "Like, he stops and like stops becoming a caricature and speaks like a person and is like, oh, I've I haven't thought about it. Well, I, I think it's because I I don't want to ever be forgotten.' And there's there's a real sort of like." weird honesty to not only that character but the play we are seeing but the documentary that the play is or that the that is about the play and about the filmmakers and craftspeople that made this film like there's just a really cool like the rabbit hole goes pretty fucking deep to that commentary that just kind of like and that's at like a midpoint maybe two-thirds through the film where i was like oh oh so this is how we're stapling all this shit together. I was like, okay, all right, all right, Clifford, you got me. I, I don't know. And I, I understand that mileage may vary, mm. but like as someone who I think feels very similarly in the sense of, uh, as the character of Clifford does, mm -hmm. um, I think one way, I think the entirety of human existence, weirdly enough, can be boiled down to wanting to be remembered in one way or another. Hmm. What and is our legacy? With, with, yeah, with grief, you're talking about the absence of a person. The hmm. Grief is one way someone can live on or their memory can live on. And, and in some ways it's healthy and in some ways it's not, and I think this film explores it. But also stories are the only way uh, truly it seems even if they change over time that like I would say it's the most clarity we can have about a remembrance even beyond uh, obelisks and carvings and other things because the, the, when you start taking away the sort of oral tradition of it all uh, you'll lose different things as well. I don't know. I, 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 I feel like I'm I'm getting a little bit off the rails here, but I I don't know. I, I'm every really... bit, every time this movie did something weird, I found a connected piece of tissue that made it all make sense to what I thought they were saying, and I was like, "This is a masterclass in interconnectivity." I, I'm really glad that you had this response to the film, by the way. Like I'm really like because because you are describing the way I feel about most Wes Anderson movies. I know it's just it's for me, and, and so I don't want to. Um, so for the point at which now where I'm going to detract on why I didn't connect to the film uh -huh. shouldn't be a detraction to your connection to the film. Eh, it won't be. be because, because you know, again, there's no part of this that is a misfire or a misstep or, or um, a lack of awareness on Anderson's part in terms of how to maneuver 
the the hall of mirrors that he displays like he's a master at doing this and yeah. has demonstrated many many times over that he's more than cape that you know and, and i think it, it is funny that um the wes anderson wes anderson has become memed on tiktok as a um as a style unto itself that's that's there to be made fun of uh you know that um i think it's funny because i think his work is so clearly from a place of a of a, a mastery of the language, you know, like a mastery of the language of cinema itself. And for me, it has always been affecting. Um, and so, so I don't want to detract from that. I think the thing isn't the case that that the Hall of Mirrors is about actors reflecting upon the absence left by left behind in a sequence. And am you know, Augie's question is, am I doing it right? Am I am I playing the grief correctly? I think the thing for me is that while there is an honorability to the, to the way that the story is being told in terms of what it's navigating isn't, isn't the actual trauma itself, but how to navigate trauma in total. Mm-hmm. I also found that I wasn't interested in the trauma as being told to us because I was never fully invested in Augie's sense of grief. Um, even even if he was playing it or even if he was um, actually feeling it, if we were to watch it as though that was actually the, the, you know, that character was a real character and his wife was left behind. I, I agree with that sentiment. Yeah. I was never sad for Augie. I was never sad for Augie. I never found that his wife's, uh, his children's navigation of the trauma was anything other than something written. And I think that's by design, you know, like it mm-hmm. is a, a written play that is being performed for us. Um, and then there was a moment where um, uh, one of the title cards came up, I think it was act three, which said uh, to be played relentlessly. And and I, I was like, when I saw that, my eyes lit up because I was like, this is where all the things that he's been doing, the two stories are going to come together and f- collapse on each other or something, you know, we're going to get kind of like, the way I felt when, you know, the, the sequence in the French dispatch where the chase is happening and then trying to retrieve the kidnapped boy and it becomes an animated sequence and stop motion and what have you. It's like, it's just relentless. But at the heart of it is like, we've built so much work into like what the core of these characters are that we can actually still traverse that excitement with a real sense of where we are at. When we got through that scene, you know, to be played relentlessly, I still, I, I had drifted off. I had found myself kind of drifting away from the film to the point where at, after the film ended, um, I, you know, the first thing I asked the other couple that were in the film, I was there by myself, um, was like, you know, what was in that Margot Robbie scene, you know, that you took away from that? And, and it reminded me, so it, there was actually two movies that are complete, completely anachronous to, to this entire conversation. But the first one was Alfonso Cuaron's film, Gravity. And the other was No Country for Old Men, because both of those. So gravity is, um, you know, space uh, being lost in space as a metaphor for grief and depression and like how to how to find oneself again, how to fight for one's uh, identity back again. And then No Country for Old Men is about the loss of the, the world that we live in. And the amazing thing about No Country for Old Men, and I don't think it's a spoiler for a 2008 movie, but, you know, the amazing thing is that the film ends with a dream that is a vivid portrait of what has been lost. And and it's a description of a dream. And in a way, that film becomes like 
all, the entire tension of the film that we've been sort of navigating becomes irrelevant because it becomes a story about uh, about the loss. And so I was thinking about those two films and the way they navigate it. But the thing is, I think in both those two films, I was still hooked on the tension of what was happening in the actual story. And then when it, when it revealed itself to be something bigger than that, I was, also, I was then delighted by that. Whereas in this, I was never hooked on the tension of the story of Augie Steenbeck and, and his uh, wife who had passed and the ashes that he's carrying and the children who are with him and how that played into the uh, central metaphor of, the, um, of Asteroid City and its visiting alien who takes away the giant asteroid. Um, I, I was just never invested in any of the tension or the reality of that other than, okay, yes, I can see this is where you're connecting it. So, so I think that's a feature, not a bug. Okay. Uh, when you were talking, I realized, I think why I connected with this and not French dispatch and you connected with French dispatch and not this. Right. I think I deal with and process and understand emotions very clinically mm -hmm. sometimes to an unhealthy degree okay um and when you look at and, and i think that's why for two reasons in this movie again i don't feel like i don't feel like um me not connecting with like augie and his family's grief on a on a personal level is a is a is a misstep I find it like it brings clarity to the idea of dealing with an esoteric force like grief. There's actually, this is a weird thing to say, but there's no like my personal feelings about the characters getting in the way of what is being said to me. Right. Um, especially when we get into, uh, like, it's it, it, especially when you get into the point of the movie, which I think is there's no right answer the writer's dead like you, you like we we are just we're we, the, the whole thing is you just continue right and you you can't wake up if you don't fall asleep there's a lot of different meanings to that for instance like even fuck even the asteroid and the alien who comes down and takes it yeah the town is not grieving per se but it changes they go like into lockdown. Something, so yeah, something is lost and it affects them, but then it's just brought back mm -hmm. a week later. And that was really telling of me for, for me in a way that like, yeah, your grief weirdly or, or what you're feeling or what you're questioning never goes away, mm -hmm. but life throws you other stuff. And you kind of move around it, right? And and again, I think well, but, because I, I the the the, feature, the the reason why I think that the sort of not connecting with them on the on a character level is a feature, not a bug, is what this movie is saying is a lot of generalities mm -hmm. that I think we don't step back a lot to look at and 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 think about and talk through when it comes to complex emotions like grief. And and even in that moment of the Margot Robbie scene on the balconies and the scene that was cut and like all that stuff, which I felt like was a very uh, wonderful piece of connective tissue, mm -hmm. it kind of still gave me the vibe of like 
there's always another thing around the corner and you can always look at that thing from an alternate angle. And I found just like incredible comfort in that. Mm. Like I, again, there I, I'm I'm looking forward to rewatching this movie a few times. This will be a physical uh media buy for me, like no question. Mm. Uh this will be one of those ones I buy on 4K even though I don't have a screen that can display it. <laughs> Um, I'm going to future proof my purchase. Uh, I don't know. I, I, and I think, and this is why I spin back. I think in the Wes Anderson of it all, the reason why I haven't connected with his films before is I think in for, for me, and I know it works for many other people, he has tried and failed to have emotional through points through his characters that are kind of deadpan and a little silly. Mm-hmm. That doesn't work for me. So what happens... When he does his shtick, and I think that's the point. Like, I don't think, I I think he's trying and succeeding for many people to have those emotional responses in things like the French Dispatch and all in his previous films. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work for me, maybe for the way that I process my thoughts about emotions. Right. This one feels tailor-made for me. Right. And and I think that's probably why I have such a strong feeling for it, and why you didn't connect to it. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it one hundred percent does. Uh, and li- and like I say, I don't want to detract from your experience of the yeah. movie. Um, I, I sort of, you know, again, I thought I think back on the tiger shark in the life in the life aquatic, and Steve Zissou looking at this ti- at the tiger shark and kind of weeping at this thing that he's been trying to hunt down his whole life because it represents the loss of his best friend that, that you know, that, that, that occurred um, at, at the beginning of the film. But and, for me, that moment doesn't work because of the style. See, for me, that moment is amplified by the style. You know, like, it's, know. Like, it's like, for me, it's miraculous because it's such a piece of artifice. That, and that's cool as hell. That, like, that, that then elevates because there's a real depth to it. In terms of like what the emotional weight of what he's trying to say, or of what of what this character is going through is, these are my favorite kind of conversations to have with you because neither like look we can like on spotlight we argue about who's right and who's wrong in a way where this I feel like we're both seeing and kind of excited for the other person's purview of these thought processes yeah like. Neither of us are wrong or right. We just experience these. Like I think that's I mean, yeah, a real testament. Two different movies. It's a real testament to Wes Anderson. Yeah, like that. That he can make films for people that experience the type of things he wants to talk about vastly differently, and it, some work and some don't. But he does. He takes different steps to do those things. I don't know. I I can't think of many other sort of filmmakers that have that sort of vibe or style or 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 like just whatever that puts them all together that I would have like this honest of a conversation about like I I, I think I would I would also put it to you know it's funny we should have plugged this at the beginning of the show um but by the time this episode released you could hear us also on a conversation uh, on another podcast the test of time podcast talking about Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade which I think that'll be out sometime I I, know I'm pretty sure it'll be out before this episode before this yeah go check that out uh, so you can hear us talking about that, but it's akin. What you're saying, what you're discussing there, is kind of akin to the way in which I felt about Steven Spielberg navigating his emotional trauma through his movies, like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, 
versus him talking explicitly about those things uh, in The Fablemans, which is a movie I did not respond to at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's maybe it, it's akin to that. It's not quite the same thing. But Wes Anderson here is making a story about how writers write trauma or write stories about grief. And then the point is to get is to think about the the fact that it is a written it, it is an exercise to go through. And what I love in in you know when the alien uh, takes the asteroid and brings Jeff it Goldblum. Back, uh, uh, yeah, the alien played by Jeff Goldblum. Of course, of course, it would be. Um, he flips it. You know, Jeffrey Wright's character flips it over and sees some markings on it. And he sees the one thing that you know is obvious there, which is like it's been cataloged, and that's it. You know, like, the, like the, what's, been, what's happened is the grief has been cataloged, it has been placed back, and it is done with. And, and that is essentially how Wes Anderson, you know, how the film is navigating grief. Uh, it gets cataloged, you know, like, it is, um, it is there, it is a crater, which, you know, like, is immense in its size, and then it gets taken away by someone and cataloged. And for Orgy... Um, that, you know, that the way it is taken away, you know, it's, it's no, um, it's, it's no accident that the photo that he takes of the alien is put up alongside the photo he takes of Mitch, uh, Midge. And, um, they, they're both characters, the alien and Midge are in the same and similar poses sort of yeah. doing a sa- the, the same thing because they are taking away his grief. Um, and it's a lovely sentiment, but... I did find myself not engaged to the point that when we get to the end of the movie, I felt like I was still wondering what the point of the movie was. And, and I think a, like it's a movie, you know, Wes Anderson gets my money every time. It's a movie I will happily revisit. Um, but, but the fact that I, for me, the fact that I have to have that conversation with myself or with you in order to kind of get to a place about it means that it's not working for me in the way that, like, when I first watched The Grand Budapest or Fantastic Mr. Fox or Life Aquatic or Rushmore, um, you know, like, where those movies really do both the things that he's talking about for me, which is that they identify, you know, like, those movies are dealing with immense loss. In Rushmore, you know, Max Fisher is still living under the weight of his, of his deceased mother who wanted him to be a certain child who, who he's not turned out to be. Um, you know, and... Um, Rose, I, I believe the character's name is Rose, uh, you know, who's, who's um, the woman he's courting in that film, is dealing with the loss of her husband. You know, like, this is normal stuff for Wes Anderson. There's a, you know, like, people make fun of Christopher Nolan for having a dead wife. There's a dead person in every Wes Anderson's, you know, in every Wes Anderson character's life that, that, that will be the sort of center point for how they navigate the world. And, um, you know, and in this case, it's a, it's, it's, it's a deceased Margot Robbie, or at least a deceased idea of Margot Robbie. Um, I think that the reason, the reason why um, this sort of resonates for me, because all that is entirely true, is I think the style for me doesn't work when you're trying to tell a character's story. That, to me, feels disingenuous, where here, right. this is trying to tell, this isn't even trying, to, trying tell to tell the story. story. This, is, this is trying to explain how grief and remembrance work right. not for Augie, not for midge mm-hmm. not for any of these characters but just the concept and when you strip down a lot of wes anderson's stuff especially post royal tenenbaums a lot of it is concept right. like 
And so I think like for me, the message of what the movie is saying is now just as uh, <laughs> this sounds dumb as hell, specific in its vagary, right? As the rest of West Anderson, does that make sense? So, like, here's the here's the challenge that I think we need to lay down for each other here, because I think you're right, which is that what we're talking about here is just the way we've experienced these two narratives differently. For you, it really worked because it's the style and the artifice is leading to a bigger point about meta narratives, and for me, the style and the artifice doesn't lead to the greater point because the actual underlying emotional truth of the narrative isn't something that I generally connected with. Mm-hmm. It would be I would be now curious if this film for you unlocks how you view the rest of his work. Like if by watching this film you go back and rewatch the French Dispatch or Grand Budapest or, I could. Uh, or Fantastic Mr. Fox and see if if now having ex- watched how his thought process works in terms of how to tell meta narratives and what they mean whether those films unlock for you. And for I me I could the challenge is whether I can rewatch this and accept it on its terms, or we could just move on. <laughs> no, I, I think mean, I, see, like that's what that's what I think would be interesting to do is like, you know, you haven't watched the Fantastic Mr. Fox yet, or you haven't gotten through it. Like, I've gotten and, through it in pieces. Like, I, I just, getting through it with a sense of now the weight of what he does. But I feel like. I've seen him try for me before. Right. It's not like it was a mystery what I thought he was trying to do. It just never hit. Right. But maybe, this is a way maybe, that what he's done is he's modified what he does to hit for me. But maybe so like it unlocks it now. Maybe. I I, I never say never. Yeah. I, I don't think so. And if I find the time, I'll go back and rewatch something. Although I am going to rewatch Royal Tenenbaums, but I also think that slaps. Um, <laughs> Also, the soundtrack for for Asteroid City is great. It hasn't. Got, I thought it's, it's, I thought it's the a, last song was good. Was actually Brian Cranston singing. It yeah. wasn't. I was sad. It's uh, Alexandra Desplat, who's you know again amazing. I also um, the thing I liked about it as well is like, you know, I I, I used to teach Chuck Jones um, uh, Looney Tunes cartoons as part of the curriculum in film studies, mm-hmm. and I felt like the thing about Chuck Jones that was so amazing is that he was able to jump between story and storytelling so well so a film like duck and muck is brilliant in terms of sure. like being able to do that and and in this you know the 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 landscape is the wily e. coyote and roadrunner to the point that the roadrunner is even a, almost a character dancing the around roadrunner. is dancing around in this and i i think you know again th- my point here is overall is that um the wiss anderson meme of it all kind like, I love that people are memeing Wes Anderson because I think it's great that people identify. Like, it's that thing w- with you with Marvel, you know, like that you said, which is that this thing that you loved so much is now mainstream and everyone loves it as well. But I also think there's a depth to it that that um, may be missed a little bit um, in terms of, like, it's not just his aesthetic. Like, anyone is capable of doing the perfect 90-degree whip, ca- whip pans or the precision in... Um, in the set decoration or, you know, the, the timing of the cuts that he can do. But he does it in service, not because it's, not because that style is something, a piece of artifice. It's just, I think that's the way he views the world. And he tells deeply emotionally resonant stories using that as his mechanism for, for, for telling those stories. And I think that's the part I kind of like, I, I haven't, Necessarily seen in the TikTok of TikTokification. Well, no, of his I mean work. because 
the TikTokification of everything is not made for deepness. Well, no, but I'm what I'm saying is, it's it, you, it, the TikTok skims the surface of a thing and delivers you something quickly. No, no, no. I think what I'm getting at is, very few people are talking about how the depth of grief that his characters are dealing with. They just talk about the the, the whip pans or the color or the right, you know, the font choices and that sort of thing. But that's what that's the thing that he's been doing since day one that is consistent, that is repeated over and over again. And it works every time. I don't know. You know? Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think that's what makes him great. You know? Like, that's what makes him... In the same way, when we had that conversation about Steven Spielberg, it's what makes Steven Spielberg great is that underlying the sort of grandeur of spectacle of what he does is a true human uh you know set of fears uh, and anxieties that are underneath it jurassic park is a great film about parenting you know like indiana mm-hmm. jones and the last crusade is a great film about a father about a father and a son you know like that that's what he does so well and i think you know I, this is not a treatise on like people doing tiktok things again i think it's great i just you know uh i think it's that's, great that's what i, I love about treatise- with anderson yeah, my treatise is the reason why there's no depth in the Wes Anderson TikToks is because they're not taking that from his work. They're taking the aesthetic choices. And that's, and, and that's, that's I think, the bigger loss is that that is so evident in all of his work. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I love this movie. I think you should all go see it. I think you should give it money. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you should skip watching the first episode of Secret Invasion because it sure is boring. I and know. then you should go watch Asteroid City. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's quite a leap as well. It's like, don't watch uh, Secret Invasion. Watch Asteroid City instead. I'm I'm looking forward to <laughs> Ep Two. Maybe something interesting happens. But man, I could that. Sorry, I'm just tangenting now because I feel like I've been too positive, and now I have to shit on something. <laughs> Secret Invasion is one of my favorite stories from the comics. Right. And I understand it cannot be the same because you just can't. Like it's not. It's whatever. But like. What they're doing is 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 deeply uninteresting. Is it Invasion of the Body Snatchers? Kind of. Yeah. Uh, and then I think the, 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 the sort of controversy is using AI for the title sequence. I guess. I mean, if you wanted to, I think thematically the fear and sort of anger about that is is on point for what the feeling that they, I think, want to get across for that series. The problem is... The entire thing feels like it's shot on a back lot mm-hmm. uh, and uh, nothing emotionally resonant happens on screen. And then when stuff that is supposed to be emotionally resonant happens on screen, they've wasted so much time in this film and other films that it doesn't even fucking feel like it matters. It's bad. Yeah. I wish it wasn't. <laughs> I hope it gets better. But Asteroid City. Now there's a picture. Now there's a fine picture. Am I supposed to be here? I'll just more out of the way. Yeah, yeah. This has been the only podcast about the film Asteroid City. Shahir, when you are not climbing down on your telescopic pole to pick up a irradiated piece of rock that fell from the sky, where can folks find you? You can find me cataloging all of our grief at my website, www.shahirdaud.com. That's S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D.com. Matt, when you are walking out of your po- podcasting booth to find an entire audience who has been watching you the entire time, and there is a writer um, for whom you can talk to about your motivations for this episode, where can people find you? You can find me still living my life after the death of that author over at my website, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-K-R-O-L.com for my life and works. Also, Skeletor, the number four, P-R-E-Z on Instagram uh, and PSN, and of course, Emperor MSK on Twitter. Also, hey, 
hey, you out there. I'm on Blue Sky. Just search my name, Matthew Kroll. Just search it. I'm there. It's nice there. It's it's quiet, and I like it. But if you want to say hi, that'd be a nice place to do it. Whereas I, actually, if you just go outside and shout into the blue sky, uh, you can probably find me. Yeah, that's probably you have very good hearing. <laughs> Next week, uh, <laughs> what do we got coming up? What I do don't we got know. coming up? There's a what's, bunch of stuff coming up, right? What's being released? We should do BlackBerry. We should get into the BlackBerry train. Maybe I've heard it's excellent. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff. I still want. I'm I'm really disappointed because we uh, we were requested to do the Eight Mountains at some point, and it is uh, despite having a very good theatrical run and really well reviewed, it is unavailable streaming, it's, which really disappoints me because like that's a film that I think a lot of people wouldn't have got to see it. I think it only played at IFC in New York City, and it's like oh, okay, immediately throw it up on streaming, and it, you know that's where that's where you build word of mouth. But it's completely unavailable from streaming at this point. Oh, uh, side note, I, just so everyone knows, because I think I said I wanted to do it. I changed my mind on Flash. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I was I like the more that the reviews came in, and the more it became like um, a sort of cleanup job of the DC universe. I was like, am I interested in seeing this? I like maybe what I is I'm interested in seeing it on streaming at some point. You know, like. Um, but yeah, look, maybe we'll do it when it hits when it hits the streaming services. I I don't know. I I, I watched uh, Elemental over the over the break as well. Nice. Uh, which I will say I don't think is a great movie, but it maybe warrants. Uh, but I think it is a good conversation. Okay. Um, oh, you know what I do want to see mm. is no hard feelings. Okay, the Jennifer Lawrence uh, raunchy rom-com. Yeah, because we don't get those anymore, and I hear really good things, and it feels like it would be super cringe, but I think it's actually going to be something that's, like, maybe important. You know, um, the thing is, I, I think... See, for me, we get those in other places that people don't look, which is that we get them in kind of Noah Baumbach movies. Um, it's just, you know, like, Jennifer Lawrence in a sort of mainstream take your date to a, on a Friday night kind of movie rom-com is not what you see. I remember, oh, what was the, um, there was the the movie, was it Cock Blockers or something like that? Uh, it was the one. Oh yeah, the, that was like better than it should have been. Yeah, John Cena playing a dad, yeah. you know, like that sort of thing. Um, I haven't seen the, the Mindy Kaling show, um, Sit in uh, high school. Oh, I've gone blank on the name right now, but the Indian know. female lead. Yeah, you know, like I think these things exist, just just not, you know, in also, an ordinary if, way. If we wanted, Indiana Jones will be out in time. I have to... not. The reviews have not been kind to that movie, uh... and it makes me. And watching um, the the original four, uh, including Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which is not good, but better than I remember. I don't uh, even know if that that, that a movie. <laughs> um, Last Crusade is such a great send-off to that character where you're just going, anytime they bring it back, it's like, it's kind of like you got a Toy Story for it, which is like, you've got a real reason for this to exist, and it's a really compelling reason. And if it's not, like, the most compelling reason to bring that character back, you had a perfect ending. You know, like, you really had a perfect ending. It's like Die Hard, uh, the Die Hard uh, franchise. Die Hard with a Vengeance is a perfect ending to that. To that, I know. did like Live Free or Die Hard. Well, when you I know saw how it. you said we were excited about each other's opinions. You're just wrong. In oh, this case, you're just no, 100. But a fire you're 100, sale. You're a hundred percent wrong. 180 degrees on the wrong side Justin of this argument. Long. Nah, that dog will not hunt. I don't know. Maybe if I watched it again, I wouldn't feel the same way. <laughs> yeah. But I did enjoy it. Uh, anyway, hey, we'll talk to you next week. This has been fun. 
Bye, everyone. Bye. Go, go see it. Please. <laughs>